Awesome. Thank you, choir. While you're uh, being seated, go ahead and turn your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and you can hold your spot there. We're starting a brand new series today entitled 316. It's kind of a different title to uh, to a series that uh, that we've never really done before. It's a verse, a chapter and verse reference uh, is what it is, and that's for a reason, uh, because in the series, what we're going to do is we're going to look through uh, about five or six, for five or six Sundays, we're going to look through different passages of Scripture that are found at this reference of 316, and uh, we're not looking at every one of them. There are 49 of them in the Bible. Not every single chapter has a reference to 316. Not every chapter has three, or not every book has three chapters specifically, uh, but there are 49 different different books of the Bible that have a 316. Not all of them are necessarily um, suitable for a message, right? It, you'd have to put a lot of backstory to it. But there are some that really set a stage and really deal with some great topics that are found at that 316 reference. And so today we're starting the series 316, and we're going to look at a few of those over these next five or six weeks ahead as we move towards summer. And then the plan is we're going to have a, a different series uh, that I'm thinking through, kind of praying about, uh, potentially for our summer as well. So 316 is where we, where we are today. We're going to be in the book of 2 Timothy. So let me tell you what this series is not. I think it's, it's helpful to begin the series by just maybe going to an area that some of you may have already been thinking, depending on some of the blog posts you read or websites that you like or what kind of gets your attention. What this series is not is we're not looking to uncover secret hidden messages or secret hidden codes in the Bible that are found at every 316 reference, okay? So a lot of times if you're familiar, you know, if you're on social media or if you're familiar with different ministry sites, sometimes you'll find Pretty popular online uh, social media entities that are kind of religious in nature, ministry in nature. They teach the Bible or preach the Bible or whatever. And a lot of times they'll promote uh, finding the hidden messages or the secret codes that are in the Bible. Any of you seen those kind of things on social media? Just curious. Let me see your hands. All right. Yeah, a few of you. Let me just say, that's not what this series is, and uh, we're not going to take all the different 316 passages in the Bible and then piece them together to form some sentence that nobody knew was in existence, and uh, we're, we're just not doing that because that's not really the way the Bible necessarily operates. So we're not trying to find secret codes and those kind of things. We're not going to piece together the third letter of the fourth verse of, of different chapters of the Bible and come up with a secret. Thing. We're not doing that. You don't need to go to Walmart or Target and buy a secret Bible decoder lens or any of those kind of things. We're, we're, the, the series is not going to deal with that specifically. And, and, and the thing is, when you think about the Bible, it's not even written that way to begin with. That's not even the way life works. I remember when I was in college at Georgia, my, uh, my mom would write letters to me, and I still have a few of those that, that she wrote, and she'd write them from work and um, and she, uh, she, you know, handwritten, she had real distinct writing and stuff. And, uh, and then when I was in seminary, I, Susie and I were dating, and so she would send me emails, and we'd email back and forth and things. And, and I've never read through any of those by trying to find the hidden meaning. I've never read through any of those letters from mom or emails from, from my wife or any of those kind of things, trying to find, all right, what is the, what's the second letter of the fourth word, and let me just add that to the fifth letter of the sixth word, and, and try to find what the secret code is. And yet, sometimes we, folks, want to go down that line as it relates to scripture. The Bible doesn't work that way at all. This series 
doesn't work that way at all. There, there are no secret hidden codes in there. There are no secret messages. The Bible is written specifically for a reason. In, in fact, I, I want to give you a principle to start with in this series, and it's going to apply not just today, not just for the series, but it's going to apply for the rest of your life as you read the Bible. This is something really good to keep in mind. When we think about the Bible, the, the plan that God has for his word, you can see this on the screen, his plan for the Bible is to communicate his word. It's not to confuse it. It's not to complicate it. It is to communicate his word. The whole reason God gave us the Bible in the first place, and, and in a moment we're going to talk about why we can trust it for what it is uh, when we look to scripture in 2 Timothy, but the whole reason he gave us his word is to communicate a message Right? It's not to confuse us. It's not to complicate it. It's not to complicate his message. And so if you ever come across folks that are kind of pushing these things, or you're at Barnes & Noble in the religious section or the Christianity section or whatever, and you see one of those books with a title like this, Find the Hidden Meaning in the Bible, or Find the Secret Codes that No One Has Ever Noticed Before Until I Wrote This Book, and You're Going to Buy It Now, Hopefully, right? When you see that kind of stuff, just remember, God didn't write the Bible for that purpose. He didn't write it to, to, to confuse us or to complicate his message. He wrote it to communicate it. And what we read in it, they're, they're not like secret messages that are hidden in here. Granted, there are passages and there are even books of the Bible that deal with a lot of symbolism. Right? You've got Revelation at the end of the, of the Bible, uh, the, last cha- the last book of the Bible. Revelation deals with a lot of symbolism, a lot of imagery. You've got books of prophecy like Daniel and Ezekiel that deal with symbolism. But those are very obvious, right? They're not trying to hide a secret message. Those are, those are certain types of literature. The Bible is written with a variety of genres of literature. You've got narrative in the Gospels. You've got works of poetry like Psalms. You've got works of wisdom like Proverbs. Uh, you've got different styles of genres of literature. Books like Revelation, Daniel, uh, Ezekiel, those are works of prophecy or they're apocalyptic literature. They read differently. We don't read the whole Bible like we would those specific books. It's very evident. In the Bible, you're going to find symbolism, but the vast majority of the Bible, we read it literally. We just take it for what it says at face value, right? That, that's how we read it. You've got allegory in the Bible as well. Jesus himself would speak through parables at times where he would tell a story that had an earthly story. It, it had a heavenly application, kind of a heavenly meaning, but those were obvious. Many times he even explained what the meaning of the parable was for us. We didn't have to try to uncover some secret code. And so when we think about the Bible, God's purpose, his plan for it is for us to be able to understand what he has communicated to us, that we can understand it clearly and that we, we aren't con- uh, confused or we don't overcomplicate it specifically. Now, here's the thing. If you've ever been new to reading the Bible, what may has caught you, have caught you off guard just a little bit is that there are some difficult things that are in there. I mean, there are some things that are hard to understand. There, there are some things that you, you'll read it, then you'll read it again, then you'll read it a third time and think, I just cannot understand the meaning of this specifically. Take a look at what it says in 2 Peter. If you want to hold your spot in 2 Timothy, 2 Peter, look at what Peter says here. This, this, is, this is interesting. Now, <clears throat> Peter wrote two books of the Bible, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. He, he's a pillar of the early church. He was essentially the, the leader in many ways, of the early church after it was born in the book of Acts, chapter 2. He preached the message that 3,000 people were saved in one day, came to place their faith in Jesus. And, uh, and yet, look at what he owns up to here in Second Peter, chapter 3, verse 15 and verse 16. 3.16, right? Hey, you're, getting two, you're going to get three 3.16s today for the price of one. We've got another one coming, so for whatever that's worth. So Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, he says, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul 
Paul was the greatest missionary that ever walked this earth, responsible for writing the majority of the New Testament. He said, just like Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Now this is Peter, the same Simon Peter that walked with Jesus for three and a half years, one of the disciples. This is Peter reading some of the letters of Paul that you can read in your Bible. And Peter is owning up to the fact, he says, some of that stuff in there is just really hard to understand. So when you read the Bible and you come across some stuff and you think, I just don't know what this means, it's okay, you're in good company. And even Peter himself would admit to the same thing. But then he goes on to say, which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So when we read God's word, we don't want to try to force it into saying what we want it to say. We ultimately want to understand it for what it intends in the original language. There are some things in there that are hard to understand, but the vast majority of the Bible we can find relates to what it says in Psalm chapter 119, verse 130. Look at what it says here, Psalm chapter 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, verse 130. It says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. So our goal in this series is not to try to put together all of the 316s and build some secret message. It's not there. It's to just use this series as a platform to look at some different 316 references that put on the table some really good, solid topics that are worthy of consideration. One of those we're going to start with today has everything to do with God's Word, and we're going to find it specifically in the book of 2 Timothy. So let me give a little context for 2 Timothy. Paul, in two of his letters would direct them to Timothy specifically, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Timothy was one that more than likely most believe had come to place his faith in Jesus as a result of Paul's influence. And so Paul comes to, uh, comes to Timothy, he shares the gospel. Timothy already had an understanding of the scriptures because of the way he was raised, primarily through his mom, through his grandma. They had influenced him with the scriptures. He places his faith in Jesus. He becomes like a young protege of Paul's. Paul pours into him. Paul now in First and Second Timothy is writing to him to give him instruction, not only in his own life, in his own walk, but Timothy was also pastoring. So he's giving him some instruction as it relates to pastoring in a local church con- context as well. And so Paul writes these two letters in First Timothy and Second Timothy. They are incredibly personal letters. Second Timothy especially is very possibly, many believe, the last writing we have from Paul before he would die as a martyr for his faith in Christ. And so as he writes here in 2 Timothy, we're going to go down to 3.16, and we're going to see what he says, because it has everything to do with the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes, and he says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. He says, All Scripture... Now, if you look over, or, or rather, if you, if you look in 2 Peter, now you don't have to turn here, but just listen to what it says. We don't have it on the overhead, on the slide. Listen to what it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 20. Peter says, know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. In other words, we don't write Scripture for what we want it to say. Verse 21, he says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So you put what Peter says 
And then you put together with that what Paul says to Timothy, and what we find is, is that the Bible, what it says about itself, this is one of the unique things about the Bible, is the claim that it makes about itself. The Bible literally claims to be God's word. Peter says men wrote it, but it wasn't written merely by men. It was the Holy Spirit who inspired them. This is going to be one of the problems that people are going to have with the Bible. If you have conversations about Scripture around the water cooler at work or with the other soccer moms or the team moms, right, or parents around the, around the ball field waiting for practice to end or with some of your friends, if you have conversation with folks and they don't have a relationship with God, when they think about the Bible, what many of them are going to think is, why do you put so much emphasis on that? Because it was just a book written by men. To which you say, yes, it was. It was written by men. That's what Peter says. But it is unique, unlike any other book that has ever been written, whether in in antiquity or in modern times, it's unique because God wrote it through men specifically. And so you see their personalities as they write. Some books read a little bit differently, but they all contain truth without error. We can bank on it. We can trust in it. One of the things that makes the Bible unique, we find here back in 2 Timothy 3.16, is that it claims about itself to be inspired by God. All scripture, Paul says, is inspired by God. He doesn't say certain parts. He doesn't say certain components. All scripture, he says, is inspired by God. That word inspired literally means to be God-breathed. So when you ask yourself, what does the Bible say about itself? It claims to be God-breathed. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking, especially if you're a little bit more on the skeptical side. You're thinking, all right, Brooks, well, there are other religions in this world that exist. There are other um, groups that claim to have relationship with God, and they have their own books, to which I would say, yes, they do. You know, whether it be the Hindu religion or the Buddhist religion, whether it be Islam with the Quran, many of them have works of authority that they would claim. You've got other counter-Christian groups that claim to be Christian but really are no more than cults. Uh, groups like Mormon, Mormonism, for example, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they would have three works of authority, one of which, maybe the primary one, would be the Book of Mormon. Right? And, and, and so what we have to ask ourselves is, is there any extra validity to the fact that a group has a work of authority, or do we first need to test it and then kind of run it through to see if it passes the test? And that's exactly what we have to do. When you look at the Book of Mormon, for example, Mormonism founded by Joseph Smith claimed to have a vision that God the Father, God the Son visited him. He was 13 years old. If any of you have 13-year-olds in your family or have 13-year-olds that you know very well, are you willing to stake your whole religious worldview on the stated claims and visions of a 13-year-old person? Probably not. (laughs) And yet all of Mormonism rests on the purported claims that Joseph Smith had when he was 13, 14 years old. Then a few years later, he claimed to have been visited by an angel named Moroni, who we don't see anywhere in the Bible, who gave him this secret message through these golden tablets, which became the Book of Mormon, right? Anybody can claim to have a book from God. And we have a variety of religions that have made that claim. The question is, however, not do they exist, but are they valid? Are they trustworthy? Have they been researched and have they been proven to be valid? What the Bible claims about itself is to be God's word. Hebrews chapter 4, for example, and there are many places in Scripture where the Bible claims to be God's word. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible reads unlike any other book in history. It reads differently. You can read the Bible and it will cut to your heart. It will, it will bring encouragement where nothing else could. It will at times expose sin in our lives. It, it will help to get us back on the right path when we've wandered, as we're going to see in just a moment. No other book in history can do that. And it's because it is a, an active book that God wrote through people. 66 books that we hold collectively as the Bible God's word. It's unique because of what it claims about itself. It's also unique because of what Jesus said about it. If you want to look over in the book of Luke chapter 24, for example, Jesus is in the midst of his ministry and uh, he makes a claim that relates to God's word as well. This is one among many. Luke chapter 24, look at what he says beginning in verse 44. It says, now he, Jesus, said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he names three different segments of scripture. He's essentially saying the whole entire Old Testament, everything written of me there must be fulfilled. He is treating the Old Testament as though it's God's word. Now this is significant because it's helpful. <laughs> to, to know what Jesus thinks about the Scriptures. Obviously, he's not speaking of the New Testament here because he's living out the New Testament. It would be written after his death, burial, and resurrection. All he has at this point when he's on this earth speaking is the Old Testament to refer to, and he puts all of it, law, prophets, and psalms. He puts it all together, and he says, these all testified of me. He's treating them as trustworthy. He's treating them as valid. And he goes on to say in Luke chapter 24 and verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand what, it, what are they called? The scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. Jesus cited 14 different Old Testament books during the Gospels. He referred to them as God's Word. We find different Old Testament characters that he treated as real historical characters, David and Jonah and Moses and others as well. Jesus considered the Old Testament to be God's Word. The New Testament could be considered as God's Word as well. Why is it unique? It's unique because of what it says about itself. It's unique because specifically of what Jesus said about it, but the Bible is also unique, unlike any other work, because of certain literary components that make it to be more valid, that proves its validity. Now, I want you to follow me here for just a second. I'm not going to throw a Bible verse out here for this particular point that I'm going to make, but I want us to think logically for just a second. I'm going to ask you to do this again in just a, just a few moments. Let's just think logically. That if the Bible was only written by men, right? if it was a book that was just compiled by men, written by men, mankind, let's say, and, and there was no component of God to it at all, if it's just another book, right? Again, you ask your friends, well, you know, why do you read the Bible? And, and, you know, because it's just a book written by men. That's what, that's what they believe. That there's no component of God in it at all. Let's just, let's just chase that for just a second. Siri's doing some research for us down front. <laughs> If it's just a book written by men, listen, let's follow that. You with me? Everybody with me? Say I'm with you. Okay, everybody's awake, I know that. If it's just written by men, why would they include some of the more embarrassing moments? Why would they include some of the moments that would seem almost to discredit the message rather than to strengthen the message? Let me just point to one for example. Why would Peter's denial of Jesus not once, twice, or three times be in the Bible if men wrote the Bible? 
I mean, after all, let's just say, if I'm going to write a book and I'm trying to promote a new religion called Christianity, what I'm not going to do is take one of the key leaders, maybe the pinnacle of all leaders in the New Testament, right? I don't think I'm going to take him and include this little story about him three times denying the very Jesus that the book that I'm writing as a man is the one I'm going to claim to be God. I'm going to leave that little part out. The reason it's in there is because man didn't write the Bible. It's because God did, and it had a purpose for being in there. There are many different embarrassing segments of Scripture, so to speak, that would seem to discredit the message of the Bible that are included in the Bible, that if only mankind wrote it, would have, they would have taken all that stuff out. I could see Peter like, hey, man, come on, just uh, how about here's 10 bucks in a Starbucks card. Just leave that part about the whole denial. You know, just leave that out. No, it's in there, and it lends a validity. From a literary perspective, it lends strength to the, to, to the claim that the Bible is God's Word specifically. And there are other examples of that as well, but that's just one. You look at the Gospels themselves. The Gospels were written within just a couple of decades, not, not John specifically. John was later. But you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were written within just a couple of decades of the events that unfolded there. They were like right up close and the events that they wrote, it's not like they waited 200 years and then wrote these stories about a man who did miracles and then rose from the dead. They did it within two decades, Matthew, Mark, and Luke did, of the events that they wrote about. Easily people could have said, you are lying through your teeth. I knew this man, Jesus, and here's what he did wrong, and here's what he did wrong, and here's what he did wrong, and here's why he didn't rise from the dead. Here's why that miracle didn't happen. That didn't, they didn't do that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their, their gospels Two decades from the events that happened, claiming, uh, Paul would claim there were 500 people Jesus appeared to. When he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians, there were people that could have easily said, you're lying, you name my name in that writing and you're lying. We don't have any evidence of that whatsoever. From a literary perspective, those claims lend strength and validity specifically to the Bible. You look at manuscript evidence, for example, I, I know I'm getting a little bit in the weeds for some but follow me on this. When, when you look at works of antiquity, these works of antiquity that we have, whether it's Shakespeare's writings or Homer uh, or Plato, but those works of antiquity, we don't have the originals really. They're copies. They're, they're, called, they're manuscript copies. And the way that you evaluate whether a work of antiquity is valid or not is that you take the manuscript evidence that you have and you apply two criteria. Number one, how many manuscripts are there? Number two, how close are they to the original when it would have been written? And you use that to help evaluate the validity of that ancient work. Are you with me? We can bring Siri into this if we need to. Just follow me. When you look at the New Testament, you've got over 5,000 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts that give us what the New Testament wrote. One of which, one specific fragment from the book of John, it's called the Rylands Fragment. It was within 25 to 30 years of when the book of John was written. And when you take that, when you, there's all kinds of distractions today. It's funny. You preach about, I haven't even gotten to the gospel yet. Wait till that happens. There'll be people coming down through the ceiling, all kinds of stuff. Right, when, when you look at that Rylands fragment, 25 to 30 years from the original when it was written in the book of John, you take that fragment that is in, in existence today and you overlay it over the book of John, the segment that it talks about, it lines up perfectly. 5,000 plus New Testament manuscripts alone, even more for the Old Testament. Dead Sea Scrolls, remember those found in the 1940s? 
large portions, almost the complete, maybe even the complete book of Isaiah found in a cave in Qumran in 1947, I believe it was. And you take those scrolls and you, you, you overlay them over the book of Isaiah and they say exactly from back then what it says today. We have so much manuscript evidence so that we know more than what Shakespeare wrote, more than what Homer wrote, more than what Plato wrote. We have confidence that the Bible that we read today, 2,000 years later, reads exactly as to what it said when it was written in the New Testament, when it was written in the Old Testament. I mean, we know what it says. We, we, there, there's, there's far too much evidence. It's not just a blind, oh, it says it's God's word. It's been proven to be unlike any other book in, in, in history. It's been proven. There, there's an internal consistency to the message. You, you take what Moses wrote in the first five books, the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You take what he wrote uh, early on in, in, in biblical history, and, and you apply it to what was written Elsewhere, let's go to the end of the book. In Revelation, when John wrote that around 90 A.D. or so, and, and you take every other book in between, it is one consistent message that doesn't contradict one another, written over 1,500 years by 40 different human authors, inspired by God, and you take this big Bible that is bound in, in over 1,000 pages in nice leather that'll cost you a penny, right? A plus, if you buy a nice version of it, that's another conversation. But, but you take this Bible, and you read it from start to finish, and there's this one message of a God who has created us, to whom we're accountable, who loves us, and who didn't want to leave us in our state of being separated from, the, from, from, from him in relationship because of our sin. But he sent his own son, God himself, in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross that we deserve that he didn't. And he rose again three days later, just like was prophesied centuries before. And he rose again, and there's testimony of it. There's extra biblical testimony of it outside the pages of Scripture from historians that wrote in history. And we've got all this evidence that points to this one central theme that God made us, we're separated from him, that he came to save and rescue us, and we only know him through a relationship with Jesus. And that's the story from the beginning all the way through to the end. Genesis 3.15 when Moses wrote in chapter 3. One more verse that would have fit into this series, right? Would have been 3.16. Genesis 3.15. It's called the first gospel, the proto-evangelion, where it talks about how the enemy will one day, he will strike him on his heel, speaking of the Messiah that would come, and the Messiah would crush him on his head. Reference to the cross and the resurrection. Genesis 3.15, three chapters in. It's one story. Show me another book that's been written by man over 1,500 years. Some other random person adds another few chapters. It's going to maintain that type of consistency. You won't find one. And the reason is because it's not written by men. Primarily, it's written by God through men. It's God's word. It says it about itself. Jesus said it. Logic ultimately proves it. But By the way, when you think about this, when you think about this, let's go down the logic road again for just a second. I don't have a verse for this. Think about it logically. Genesis, I've talked about creation here a good bit recently in some recent messages. Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created. He created everything as we know it. We create, created the heavens and the earth, animals. Day 6, he created people, right? When we examine creation, as we've talked about here recently, most scientists would agree even atheistic scientists as well, that the universe has a beginning. That's a change from where they fell down on the issue a number of years ago. Most, including atheistic scientists, would agree the universe had a beginning. Time, space, and matter had a starting point. If time, space, and matter had a starting point, which science proves, by the way, Einstein had a little something to do with that also, 
if it had a beginning point, a starting point, then what that means is something outside of time that's timeless, outside of space, and outside of matter that's immaterial would have to be in existence to bring it into creation. Okay? You with me so far? Hopefully so. So if we hold to the fact that there is a God who exists outside of time, outside of space, outside of matter, who has existed everything or who has created everything that we have in existence, including we ourselves, wouldn't it logically make sense then that he would have created all that for a purpose, one for his glory and then people for relationship? And if that's the case, wouldn't it logically make sense then that he would communicate to his creation exactly who he is and not just leave it up to a guessing game? It makes perfect sense. The God who is without beginning, without end, who created us for relationship with him, has indeed communicated to us exactly who he is. And he's done it in the pages of his word. So that we can know him, so that we can be rescued from our sin that ultimately came, and so that we can have relationship with him. So the Bible is unlike any other book. So what, what's it useful for? What's the Bible good for? Second Timothy 3, let's go back to it again. Verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable. And he lists four things, Paul does. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. You don't really have to know the Greek words behind those English words and phrases there. It's pretty self-explanatory. Paul says here's four things the Bible is good for. Number one, it's good for teaching. It, it teaches us about God. It teaches us about who he is. It teaches us about his works. It teaches us about his nature. It doesn't teach us exhaustively everything about him. John said if, if, if they recorded just the works that Jesus did in his, in his life and ministry, that the whole world couldn't contain the works that would be written about him, right? So the Bible isn't exhaustive. All, exhaustive. It doesn't tell us everything about God and his nature and his works and his will, but it communicates to us who he is and what he desires. The Bible tells us about who we are. It tells us about our heart. It tells us about, uh, about our lives. It tells us about what God's desire is for our lives on this earth and through eternity as well. The Bible communicates about who we are. It tells us principles to live by. It gives us truth and it communicates. It teaches Paul says to Timothy, the Bible is profitable for teaching. It's, pro it's profitable for reproof. That means to, to rebuke when we sin, to rebuke when we rebel, kind of like a parent would for their children who sin, go against the standards, right? Go, go against truth. A parent's going to rebuke that, not just correct it, but rebuke it. That's what the Bible does. It exposes sin. It brings sin to, the, to light. It brings it to the surface. It rebukes sin, tells us what we've done wrong, and then it corrects it corrects error. It corrects us so that we can make the right choices. And then finally, it trains us in righteousness. It teaches us how to walk a walk that glorifies God. Um, Rick Warren, a pastor for many years out at Saddleback Church, written a bazillion books, uh, has been doing ministry for many, many years. He looks at that passage. I love the way he unpacks that passage. Let's bring 2 Timothy 3.16 back up again. He talks about that section about teaching and reproof and correction, training in righteousness. He, he unpacks it this way. He says that the Bible is profitable for showing us what the path is, right? For showing us what God's path is. It shows us when we've moved off the path. It's profitable for re reproof. Shows us when we moved off the path. It, it, it exposes that. It's profitable for correction. It shows us how to get back on the path when we've gotten off the path. And then it's profitable for helping us to stay on the path. It trains us. 
and righteousness. That, that's what the Bible is good for. That's what Paul says to Timothy. This is why you need to engage Scripture, because it's going to teach, it's going to reprove, it's going to correct, and it's going to train you in righteousness. But there's a second principle that we have to understand as we consider all this. The second principle is this, that transformation through God's word, if our lives are going to be changed, transformation through his word doesn't happen without intentional engagement. We have to engage his word. This is what I'm saying, Christian. If you've been saved for a number of years or for decades and this book sits on the shelf and depending on how often you come to church depends on how much dust may accumulate on it, right? So if you come weekly but you don't engage it through the week, if you only come to church on Sundays, it's going to have maybe a week's worth of dust. If you live on a dirt road, maybe a little bit more than those on paved roads. Right. If you come to church once a month and that book goes on a shelf, when you take it back down, it's going to have a month's worth of dust. If you come to church only rarely, then it goes up on a shelf. It's going to have a, a pretty decent little layer of dust there. Right? There's no extra special transformation that happens in your life just because this sits on a shelf at home. You can pack it in your bag, you can take it off to college, you can put it on your desk at work. Just having it close by does nothing to transform your life any more than when you were in class as a student and you thought going to sleep with a science book on your head would help you to learn the material, right? It doesn't work that way. Transformation only happens when we intentionally engage this book that is unlike any other book ever written because it's written by God to us. We have to, we have to engage it. I, I, I can't read the biography of Michael Jordan and expect to play ball like Michael Jordan. Right? Now, I could hope that would happen, and I haven't given up on it. My days, you know, still some hope. Not really. But I can't read a biography of Michael Jordan and think that I'm going to go out in the backyard and gra- out in the driveway and grab a basketball and start shooting. And I'm going to play like MJ. It's no. Even just reading the Bible isn't going to transform our lives. We have to engage it. We have to engage it with intentionality. And this is where you get the the three for one today. This is the third three sixteen we're going to look at, and then we're going to start to. To close, Paul would write a letter to the believers in the city of Colossa, the church there. In Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Don't just read it. He says, let it dwell within you. Soak in it. Let it read you. Right. Let it take root. Let it shine. Open up the doors of your life, all the different rooms of your life, your, your, your finance room and your, your, um, your, your career room and your relationships room, all those doors of your life. He says, open up those doors, swing those doors open, and let the word of Christ shine in there. Let it, let it richly dwell within you. And then he says, don't just soak in it. He says to share it. He says, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms. And hymns and spiritual songs, the idea there that those are rooted in Scripture, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So you put it all together. God wrote it. He wrote it to communicate who he is. He didn't write it to confuse us or to complicate the Christian life. He wrote it to tell us about who he is, about who we are, how we know him through a relationship with Jesus. He gave us all these truths, principles to live by. We can bank on it. We can live by them. We can, we can bank our eternity on it because it's not going to lead us astray. But we have to engage it or life change doesn't happen 
So how can we engage it? Five things and I'm done real quickly. How can we engage intentionally Scripture? Number one, I'm going to have these up here. Make a plan to read it. One of the biggest reasons people don't spend time in God's Word is because we don't have a plan to read it. And, and let me say, if you're not currently in any type of a, uh, of a routine um, of reading God's Word, <clears throat> carve out five minutes to start. Don't, car- don't carve out half an hour. Don't start with an hour. Start with five minutes. And if you don't have five minutes in your day <laughs> to devote to reading God's Word, listen, you're... You, you need to make some other changes because you're going to burn out faster than nobody's business. You're, you're going to, if you don't have five minutes, carve out five minutes to spend in God's Word. And, and you say, well, Brooks, uh, I'm going to need more than five minutes. I understood, but start with five. And when five minutes starts, close the book, praise God, thank Him for what He gave you. That's His treasure to you. Ask Him to give you strength to apply it and to live it. But start with five minutes. If you, if you say, I don't know where to start, don't start in Leviticus. I'll say that. Uh, if, you, if you say, I don't know where to start, I don't even I wouldn't recommend necessarily Genesis, but you can if you want to. But I would recommend starting in one of the Gospels. They're easy to understand, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You can start in the Psalms. Those are works of poetry that are God's truth to us that apply it in virtually any area of our lives. You can start in Psalms. If you, if you want to jump in, not to the deep end theologically, if you want to jump in and, and have the truth like put right between your eyes, you can start in a book called James towards the end of the New Testament. And it'll lay out all kind of stuff that needs to change in your life. All right, He cuts to the chase and he just gets right to the, to the, to the good stuff. But those are books that are easy to read. James, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Psalms. Those are great places to start five minutes a day. How do you intentionally engage it? Make a plan to read it. Number two, take it further and study it. Start with reading it five minutes and and then stretch that a little bit. Begin to study it. Get a good study Bible, a a Bible with good study notes that are there. So many resources online. Some of them you need to stay away from, others that are really, really good. Our staff would be glad to help you to find a way to study the Bible uh, on your own. Uh, A study Bible is one of the best ways, and I can recommend a couple of them really easily to you if you want to know more. So take it further. Don't just read it, but study it. Number three, read it not just to learn about it, but to live it. Read it to live it, not just learn it. Don't go away, close the Bible, and say, wow, I learned some new stuff. That's great. That's awesome, right? We need to learn more because that's truth. We need to learn the truth. But it's not just to grow big between the ears, right, so we got more knowledge. Knowledge puffs us up. What we want is to be able to begin to live it. So we don't want to just know, you know, for example, the Bible says, you know, do not lie. We also want to apply that. It does us no good if we know what it says, but then we don't live it. So read the Bible to live it, not just to learn it. Number four, look at the fourth one. Study it alone and study it with others. Study it on your own. Develop a system. We've got Bible reading plans. Jason has sitting out in the hallway out here. All kinds of plans you can use to help uh, create some consent out there. If we sell out of them consistently, we'll add more to them if we need to. We want people in God's Word. Study it alone, but then study it with other people, right? We have groups here. We call them grow groups. We have discipleship groups called D groups. Those are for a reason, not just because we're supposed to do it. It helps us to grow when we study the Bible in conjunction with other people. Iron sharpens iron. And then number five, the final one, as we study God's Word, don't forget there's a component that we want to pass it on. Pass it on to other people. That's what Colossians is talking about in Colossians 3.16, that we pass it on. We sing hymns, we sing hymns and psalms. And I don't know if you literally have to run around singing, you know, singing Scripture every time you run into Walmart or in market or wherever, right? But as you learn in God's Word, pass it on to other people. 
When people say, hey, how's your day going? Man, it's going awesome. I had my devotional this morning, and here's what God showed me. Here's what God reminded me. You know, hey, what'd you do this weekend? Hey, I went to church, and, and here's what I learned, and, it, and it's just really challenged me. And, you know, pass it on. Pass it on to others. That's the way it's designed. And so all this is not designed to just be an interesting message about the Bible. We have to put handles to it, and we have to begin to engage it on our own. And when you think about what this is, sitting on this table, sitting in your lap, maybe at, in your, at home on the bookshelf for you, you have an absolute treasure that God has delivered directly to you, that there are nationalities and places on this globe that don't have access to this book, that are longing for it. A friend of mine, a friend of ours that we supported as a missionary in Papua New Guinea is there living with his family, raising his family, and serving for the sole purpose of helping to translate the scriptures into the heart language of the people of Papua New Guinea. There are places that don't have access to this book, and we do. God's given you a treasure. He's given you a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. He's given you his personal letter to you. Not to try to find the secret codes. They're not there. But to just understand him and know him for who he is as he's communicated who he is clearly in those pages. And so read it, study it, live it, learn it, pass it on to his glory. And if you don't know him, Understand that the primary way he's spoken, even beyond his word, is through his son Jesus that he sent, who walked amongst men, lived a perfect life, died and rose. So that as we confess our sins and say, Jesus, I've blown it and I need rescue. And as we invite him to forgive and take over, he'll save us and he'll keep us forever. If you've never done it, you can do that right here today. Right where you sit, invite him and he'll answer that call. Let's pray. God, we thank you for, for this treasure that you've given us. Lord, thank you for this treasure that we call the Bible. Jesus called the Scriptures. Lord, thank you for the Old Testament. Thank you for the New Testament that you've inspired in a way that we can trust in as without error. Lord, thank you that it survived the, the ages Nations and governments have tried to eradicate it, and it just won't go away. Your word will last forever, it says, about itself. And for the man or the woman who reads it and lives by it, it doesn't guarantee a life without difficulty. It doesn't guarantee even a life without opposition. But what it does guarantee is it will lead us to you. First through relationship with Christ, the gospel, and it'll lead us deeper into your heart, Lord, as we learn more of you when we read it, study it, live it. It'll put us on a path that Psalms 1 tells us is a path of fruitfulness and abundance. And so God, help us to be people who, who have a love, of, as Psalm 119 talks about, a love for your word. May it be sweet to our lives, God. May we embrace it and, and live it. And God, not only as individuals, but collectively as a church. God, thank you for the blessing that you've given us, communicating to us that as you made us and put us in this world, Lord, you also shared with us who you are. And so we praise you for the word that you've given, your word. God, help us to live it. In Jesus' name.